Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we do come before you once again and ask you to be here. We trust that you are. Um, Help us to be uh, in your word this morning as we discuss your church. Help us discern your will for it. Help us to be faithful to your word. And most of all, help us to hold fast to your truth so that we can proclaim your gospel to the world. Please be with me as I teach. You know well my limitations. Uh, Speak to us this morning. We ask this in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. So today, this is the penultimate session, the session before the final session of our Biblical Worldview class. Um, Next week, we're going to get to our class that's just questions and answers. Uh, This week, we're talking about man and woman at church. And the focus today is going to be about whether or not the Lord has created the church to have different ministries or roles set aside for men and women. Now, as with man and woman together and man and woman at home, I'm going to be spending our time this morning focusing mainly on making the positive case for our view of man and woman at church. And again, just to be clear, pretty much everything I'll say this morning has scholarly pushback against it, including from faithful Christians. But I'm convinced that what I'm going to share with you is the best biblical reading on these issues. There continues to be a stack of blank question cards there on the piano and a box in which to put them. Like I said, next week, I'll take a shot at answering all of the questions. So the crux of this issue about man and woman at church is whether or not there are roles in Christ's church that are reserved for men. And that's sort of the big question that we come to the Bible asking. And I'm going to argue today that the Bible sets aside the roles of priest and bishop, basically the conflated and overlapping New Testament categories of elder and overseer to men. Now, as we've talked about over the last couple weeks, let's clarify one more time that we are not talking about value. We're talking about role. We're not talking about dignity or imago Dei. Today's class will begin with a look at the roles men and women have had in church throughout time. We'll look particularly at the ministries that women engaged in, in both the Old and New Testaments, before turning our attention to some explicit teaching in Paul's letters. And in the end, we'll come to some conclusions about the biblical mandate for a distinction between the ways in which men and women are called to serve in Christ's church. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but it's worth noting again here that in the ACNA, our denomination, only men can be bishops. So even in dioceses that ordain women to the priesthood, or to use a better, more biblical word, to eldership in the local church, they do so under the authority of a male bishop. So the ACNA in its constitution, acknowledges that some roles in church are reserved for men. Now, exactly which roles under the authority of a bishop are open to diocesan interpretation in the ACNA? The ACNA allows for a multiplicity of views on the ministry of women in the church. Some dioceses ordain women to eldership, some only to the diaconate, like ours, and some to no clerical orders at all. The ACNA honors all of those views, 
calls its clergy and members to honor all those views and believes that those who hold them are interpreting the Bible in good faith and are brothers and sisters in Christ. The Diocese of Christ Our Hope, in which Grace Church resides, ordains women to the diaconate, but not to eldership. And as you'll see over the course of this session, that's the view I'm going to argue for. I believe that that's the best application of the biblical teaching and would always want to be a part of a diocese that upholds that. So, even though most of the scripture that we're going to look at today doesn't mention the issue specifically, like it did when we talked about husband and wife last week, keep in mind the why of all this. The church is like a bigger version of a family. And in the same way that the husband, as we saw last week, is called to have a special leadership role as head of his family, the elder or pastor or priest, though the vocabulary can certainly get a little bit confused there, the authoritative leader and teacher of the church functions as its head. So again, we have a sermon here, a visual sermon preached to the world about Christ's relationship to his church, head and body, husband and wife, elder, and congregation. So I want to begin with a look at ministry in the Old Testament, and especially the ministry of women therein. As we go through the Old Testament and the New, and then into our expectation for the Church of Jesus Christ today, I think you're going to be wowed by how much amazing ministry women are doing. Now, we shouldn't be wowed, but I think that's going to be a common Reaction. We've come to accept, I think it's just in the water, that ministry is done by the minister, i.e. the guy wearing the collar in the church. And so if women can't be elders, the thinking goes, they must in some way be prevented from doing ministry. But nothing could be further from the truth. This is the sort of illogical outgrowth of the cultural lie that a woman can only be truly fulfilled if she's doing everything that she's called to do and everything that a man is called to do too. But remember, that's not true. Women have a God-given vocation of their own, nurturing, supporting, caring, in a sense, mothering, whether or not they are a biological mother within the body of Christ. The elder or pastor or priest is actually not the only or really even the primary minister in a gospel-fueled, Holy Spirit-filled church. The elder, as we'll see, does have a unique headship, leadership role, but ministry is done by everyone, women overwhelmingly included. So as we look at examples of women in ministry in the Old Testament, we're going to look at three ministerial categories— Prophets, judges, and priests. And we'll see that women served as prophets and once as a judge, but not as priests. This will be instructive for us. It's also worth noting that as we begin our survey of ministry in the Old Testament, is that the Hebrew scriptures are a record of events in a very patriarchal culture, and that Israel's leaders were almost always men. And the occasional Examples we have of women in leadership are just that, occasional examples. They're exceptions, and they're not examples of explicit teaching. We don't really have explicit teaching about what men and women should and shouldn't do with regard to church leadership 
other than the all-male Aaronic and Levitical priesthood until the New Testament. But I think it's good to get this Old Testament background. It will be beneficial for us to have as comprehensive a view as possible. So first, we're going to look at Old Testament prophets. And there were female prophets in the Old Testament. This is inarguable. Huldah, a prophetess in the kingdom of Judah, is mentioned in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Miriam, Moses' sister who helps lead the Exodus, and Isaiah's wife are all referred to as prophets. They are all given words from God to speak to the people. Now, it's certainly true that female prophets are infrequent. All the major and minor prophets, the ones who wrote biblical books, were men. But female prophets definitely existed and even spoke to and advised kings. So God definitely gives women prophetic words for the church. This is a powerful and important ministry. And we'll see that this prophetic ministry carries through into the New Testament. St. Paul wants women to prophesy in his churches, and he gives them instructions about how to do so properly. So that's prophets. Now, judges. Now, in the time before Israel had a king, judges were appointed to rule over them. And one of those judges, Deborah, was a woman. And the story of her judgeship is in the book of Judges, uh, chapters 4 and 5. The judge was a high-level leadership role in Old Testament Israel. They would resolve legal disputes, often in consultation with a priest, that could not be satisfactorily resolved at a lower level of city leadership. And indeed, Deborah was actually the rare judge in that she didn't completely blow it like so many of the other judges did. However, this is an important distinction, while judges were a super high-level leadership role, judges did not teach the word of God to the people. That's what the priests did. There were priests throughout the land tasked with overseeing the people's spiritual lives and administering the sacrificial system, the judge was a civic, not a religious or theological figure. There's another unique thing about Deborah's judgeship that sets her apart from the other judges and might temper how we view the authority that she clearly had. Because while most judges were military leaders, again, think of Samson and Gideon, Deborah was not. A man named Barak led the military under Deborah's judgeship. So there's some sense here, I think, that even though Deborah absolutely occupied an important and high-level leadership position, that leadership was somewhat attenuated, illustrated by the fact that she did not lead the army like the other Israelite judges did. This is another, I think, illustration of the Lord's gendered vocations at work. Deborah is certainly and absolutely a leader, but when it comes time to lead the people into battle, the Lord appoints a man to do that. Deborah cares for and nurtures the people, but when push comes to shove, literally, Parak leads them. Nonetheless, it's impossible to argue that women didn't occupy high-level civic leadership roles in Old Testament Israel. But of course, there is one leadership role in Old Testament Israel that women did not occupy, that of priest. In Exodus chapter 40, the Lord sets aside Aaron and his sons to be priests. 
And in Numbers chapter 8, the priesthood is explicitly limited to men over the age of 25. So the most authoritative interpreters of God's word and law were to be men. Interestingly, this restriction is actually uncommon for the time and place. We can't say, well, that's sort of a hat tip to the male-dominated culture of the time. Female priests wouldn't have been accepted. In truth, female priestesses were not only not unknown in the surrounding cultures, they were very common. But the Levitical priesthood was, by divine law, reserved to men. Now, even though the priesthood has changed in the meantime, even though now all Christians are priests of a new covenant, the New Testament speaks of the priesthood of all believers, and no one needs priestly mediation to get to God. You can do that all on your own. It still makes logical sense that this highest spiritually authoritative office in the Old Testament would be at least somewhat analogous to New Testament eldership, a role that, as we're going to see in a few minutes, the Bible also reserves to men, those whom God has designed with this vocation of spiritual leadership. The priests were the ones who interpreted the law, who decided matters of clean and unclean. Even when a judge, remember, a super high civic office, even when a judge made a ruling, the priests were there to interpret God's word for them. Prophets and judges were very rare. They were sort of regional offices at best, sometimes even less. Priests were all over the place. They were the readily accessible leaders who interpreted God's word for the people. And only men could be priests. This is our Old Testament brief, admittedly, summary. What have we learned? We've learned that women were active in ministry among God's covenant people, including serving in high and authoritative positions. We didn't really discuss political roles, mostly for the sake of time, but women were (coughs) town representatives, and in the case of Esther, a queen. Now, of course, Esther was queen during her people's captivity in Persia, and her leadership of the people was, in a sense, one of trying to influence the Persian king, over whom she didn't have any authority whatsoever. So a bit of a different kind of leadership there. Women were also judges, at least in one instance, and prophets. So while they did very important ministry and had very high leadership roles in God's covenant community, the highest and authoritative spiritual and teaching role, the priest, was reserved for men. And this is a pattern that I think we're going to see carry over into the New Testament, to which we will turn our attention now. Now, we do have explicit teaching in the New Testament, unlike the sort of narrative examples that we just looked at from the Old Testament. And explicit teaching, do this or don't do that, is always going to be more helpful to us than examples, uh, because it's not always easy to extrapolate from what happened yesterday to what should happen today. Uh, Indeed, it's sometimes hard to tell if something that happened in the past was even good or bad. For instance, when I surveyed female prophets in the Old Testament, there were several female prophets who were, though, explicitly identified as false prophets. So perhaps just because a woman was a prophet Maybe that's not necessarily an example to be emulated. Of course, we do have good examples of female prophets in the Old Testament as well. All I'm saying is that the existence of an example 
is not necessarily definitive. So therefore, we're going to be grateful for direct apostolic teaching on these issues. But even though I want to get there eventually, we are going to look at a few more examples, this time from the New Testament. We have a couple more roles that I want to look at. The hosts of house churches, (laughs) teachers, deacons, and apostles. Now, as we look, keep in mind the key distinction that we're going to be looking for. We've admitted and acknowledged and praised that women served invaluable ministry in the church in the first century and should continue to do so today. But is there any evidence that women served in the highest role of authority, elder, overseer, apostle, or any explicit instruction that they either should or should not? So let's dig in one at a time, one role at a time. We're going to look at the host of a house church first. What was that role? What was it like? Many people are greeted in the New Testament as the hosts of house churches, and there are women among them. For instance, at the end of his letter to the Colossians, St. Paul writes, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. This was an important ministry in which Christians could engage, and women certainly engaged in it. And some have wondered if being the host of a house church implied some form of authoritative leadership. But it doesn't seem that that was the case. Timothy and Titus, for instance, are commissioned to appoint elders for house churches that already exist. These churches needed leaders, they needed elders, even though they already would have had hosts. So while hosting a house church was important and valuable ministry, crucial to the survival of the early church, it did not seem to entail leadership or authority. It did, however, entail caring and nurturing some of the God-given vocation with which women are especially called and blessed. What about teaching? Who taught in the New Testament church? And most pointedly, did women teach? Now, we're going to talk about 1 Timothy 2, in which Paul says that he does not allow a woman to teach in a minute. We're going to set that aside, though, and look at some teachers and teaching more broadly before we specifically address what Paul might be saying in his letter to Timothy. So in Titus, Paul explicitly asks women to teach. Specifically, he's asking older, more mature women to lead younger women in discipleship. They, the older women, are to teach what is good, he says. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So Paul wants women to teach and he wants them at least teaching the younger, less mature women how to grow up into mature women of the faith. And we have another clear example of women teaching. This is in Acts 18. And this time we have a woman teaching a man. Now I'm I'm focusing on examples of women teaching here because I think we can all agree that the New Testament is replete with male teachers. So we're going to look explicitly about what women are doing. But in Acts 18, a disciple named Priscilla, along with her husband, Aquila, teaches the evangelist Apollos, correcting his doctrine. Now, Apollos is a zealous and talented teacher himself, but it seems like he was making some theological errors. (coughs) So Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and, as Luke writes, explain to him the way of God more accurately. 
Now, there are some qualifying factors here. They don't do this in public, and Priscilla is with her husband, but she definitely is involved in this teaching instance. She teaches or is part of a team that teaches an eloquent and competent man theology, correcting him about truths of the faith. I don't think we should overlook this, but we also shouldn't make more of it than it is. Priscilla is not here acting as the elder or leader of a body of believers. She's not teaching the gathered congregation on a Sunday morning. She is a wise Christian woman who has knowledge of the truth to share, and she is not criticized for sharing it, even with a man. So it seems clear to me that women can definitely teach, at least in certain circumstances, and can certainly share wisdom one-on-one with anyone in the body of Christ. But a survey of the teaching office in the New Testament doesn't seem to provide any evidence that women taught authoritatively or as the elder or overseer of a congregation. So nurturing for sure, which comes out of a woman's God-given vocation, but not authoritative leadership, which seems to come out of a man's. Let's talk about deacons. Now, the Greek word that is translated deacon, diakonos, means servant. So anyone who served could be referred to as a deacon. The Greek word is used both ways. It also eventually came to refer to an appointed office in the church. So anybody who was called a servant might be called diakonos. But then in Acts chapter 6, when the apostles found that they needed to devote themselves to teaching, they appointed seven men to be servants, specific servants of the church. And these were also called deacons. These are servants of a special kind, officers appointed in the church, deacons. Now, St. Paul lays out the qualifications for these appointed deacons in 1 Timothy 3. The diaconal role seems to focus on meeting the body's practical needs, enabling the elders to focus, like the apostles, on preaching and teaching. So there's definitely a leadership component to the diaconal ministry, but it's not quite the same as eldership. That's why when you look at those diaconal qualifications, the only substantive difference between them and those for elders is that it's only in the list of qualifications for elders that they be, quote, able to teach. Otherwise, the qualifications are almost exactly the same. But elders are to be able to teach, and that qualification does not exist in the list for deacons. Deacons don't need to be able to teach because though they have real authority, both in the church and in representing the church to the world, they don't fulfill the highest authoritative role in the church, the spiritual head, the leader, the teacher of the congregation. Which brings us to Phoebe. In Romans chapter 16, Paul is sending personal greetings to the church in Rome. And he begins like this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. That word that the ESV translates there as servant is that word diakonos, deacon. 
Now, that word does, of course, just mean servant in that general way, but it seems likely to me that this is a reference to the official appointed position rather than the generic deacon servant usage because Paul qualifies it by saying of the church in Centria. That's clue number one, I think, that Phoebe is not just a servant in general, but is an appointed deacon in the church because she is a deacon of this particular church in this particular place. A clue number two is found in the qualifications for deacon in 1 Timothy 3. So after telling Timothy about what qualities those appointed to the diaconate must possess, dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, and holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, Paul writes, quote, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That's the ESV translation, their wives likewise. But in the footnote, the translators acknowledge that because the Greek word for wives is the same as the word for women, it could also read, the women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, and so on. And if that's how you translated it, Paul would be saying that in addition to the male deacons, the women who are deacons would need to have these qualifications. That's, for instance, how the NIV renders it. Now, I'm going to argue for this translation, that these are qualifications not for the wives of deacons, but for female deacons for two reasons. First, these are clearly requirements for people who will be doing ministry, not simply requirements for people whose husbands are doing ministry. Secondly, it doesn't make much sense for Paul to list requirements for deacons' wives when he has not laid out any similar requirements for elders and overseers' wives in the paragraph that immediately precedes this one. Surely, if the wives of deacons had to meet certain standards of qualifications, the wives of elders, a role of higher authority, would too. It makes more sense to me that there aren't requirements for anyone's spouse, but that Paul has qualifications for ministers in view in this whole section, for elders and overseers, who should be men, and for deacons, who could be men or women. Now here, as we consider the role of deacon, we see that a woman's vocation is clearly in play, nurturing, supporting, caring, all serving the body of Christ. She doesn't need to do what a man does, leading a congregation in the role of elder, to be totally fulfilling her God-given role. So it seems like both men and women can occupy all the ministerial roles that we've discussed so far. Hosts of house churches, teachers, at least in some contexts, and deacons. Now, though, let's turn to the role that only men seem to occupy in the New Testament, the role that maps most closely onto the roles our diocese reserves to called and qualified men, the elders. Although, actually, I'm going to take a quick sidebar at this point to talk about apostles. We'll get to elders in a second. Let's do apostles here real quick. Some have argued that Junia, a follower of Christ mentioned in Romans 16, was an apostle like Peter, James, John, the rest of the 12. And if that's the case, the argument goes, what grounds could there be for excluding women from any office in the church? You can't get higher than apostle. No one had any more authority than them. 
So I want to spend just a minute or two on apostles before we get to elders. So the word apostle is very much like the word deacon. It has a generic meaning and a specific one. It has a formal use, which refers to the apostolic office. This is, for instance, the authority that Paul claims when he comes to Corinth. The Christ-appointed elders and leaders of the early church. But it can also simply be an informal noun. Someone who is sent, apostolos. Uh, The UPS guy in this usage is an apostle. Someone who is sent somewhere is apostolos. For example, the renowned theologian N.T. Wright makes the pithy statement that the women who first see the empty tomb and are sent to tell the twelve are apostles to the apostles. This sounds good, but it's actually a fallacy called equivocation in which the definition of a word is changed within an argument. Here he does it within one sentence. The angel at the tomb sends some women, apostolos, anyone who's sent, to notify the apostles, those who are appointed by Christ to the apostolic office that Jesus has risen. So same word, two ways to use it. Now, this is not to say that women should not announce the resurrection or tell people about Jesus. They absolutely should. In fact, they must. It simply means that we need to be intellectually honest enough that when we see the Greek word apostolos, it will be important to know which use is in view. So some things to note about apostles, speaking specifically now in reference to the appointed office in the church. The 12 apostles and Paul who joined them as one born out of due time, the ones holding that authoritative office, were all men. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Paul writes of himself and the others, quote, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? This implies, I think, that the apostles were all male, and that the apostles' wives were not themselves called apostles, even though they typically traveled with their husbands and likely helped them in important ways in their ministries. In other words, even though they were sent, they were not called by this apostolic office. They would have been well-respected and would have had important, even critical ministry roles, but they were not themselves the appointed authoritative leaders. So now with that background about the word, Let's talk about Junia for a second. There are lots of points of contention about Junia. This is another thing like head last week. You can read yourself for hours and hours about Junia. Um, I don't have time to go into all of that this morning, but here's the verse, uh, Romans 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. So that's the ESV, but again, this is a contested translation. The contest is whether it should be translated well-known to the apostles, implying that she wasn't one, or well-known among the apostles, implying that she was, and was, in fact, in some sense, higher. Like Well-known among the apostles is Junia and Andronicus, or even better known than the Twelve. Now, I believe that the best scholarship comes down on the side of Junia being known to the apostles, although, to be fair, that is currently a minority view. Fewer scholars think that, but I do think that the work of these fewer scholars is more persuasive. But since it's a minority view, let's grant for the sake of argument that the translation should be among the apostles, and that Junia is being referred to here by Paul as 
apostolos, one who is sent. Well, what does that mean? What kind of apostolos does Paul have in view? It seems more likely that it is apostle used here in the general sense, one who is sent, not one of the 12 to the appointed office, but that it's referring to everyone who's sent, that Andronicus and Junia are well known among all of the people who are being sent out on mission, that she was a missionary, likely with her husband, who is named with her here in the text, and that Junia had a much valuable, uh, valuable and much needed access, a great role, because she would have had access to the then segregated women's areas of society. So I think that the best argument, if you were to grant that she's well known among the apostles, is that she is sent, but doesn't occupy the apostolic office like one of the 12. So those are our narrative examples. We have finally come to the point of looking at some explicit New Testament teaching about church leadership. And we've looked a little bit already at the qualifications for deacons. Let's look now at what the Bible has to say about elders, these authoritative leaders serving at the direction of the apostles of the early church. This is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Paul gives the qualifications for elders. Therefore, he writes, an overseer, and like I said at the beginning, overseer and elder are used interchangeably in the New Testament. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So the first thing to notice is that all the pronouns and identifiers here are masculine, husband, he, his. The unique elder overseer qualification, everything else, like I said, is just like the deacons, is able to teach. This connects eldership with teaching and having the responsibility to oversee teaching in the congregation. Teaching the gathered church, especially on Sunday, the weekly gathering, is the authoritative elder role. Titus chapter 1 verses 5 to 9 confirms this, including not only teaching, but authority to correct a member of the church. The elder, quote, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. When in the next paragraph in 1 Timothy 3, Paul lists the qualifications for deacons, he also lists qualifications for female deacons. No such qualifications for female elders exist. Therefore, if we see, and I think we rightly do, if we see female deacons in the second half of 1 Timothy 3, it points all the more to the fact that eldership and that authoritative teaching role is reserved to men. But as we said earlier, Paul does call women to teach and that women in scripture who teach are not rebuked for it. But I've just now said that eldership and the authoritative teaching role that goes with it is, is reserved to men. So what gives? What's with this apparent contradiction? 
And I think we can shed some light on this by looking back at 1 Timothy 2, just before Paul tells his younger protege about the qualities he's looking for in elders and deacons. This is a difficult passage, sort of giving you a trigger warning here. This is almost impossibly difficult to our modern sensibilities. But let us remember our posture. We submit ourselves to the scriptures. We never place ourselves above them. What they say is good and is for our benefit, and we ought to work to understand them properly, even when they make us have big eyeballs for a second. So let's start reading in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly, Paul says, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Deep breath. <laughs> we all okay? So let's dig in and see if we can't understand what Paul is saying to the church here. And the first thing to know is that 1 Timothy is written to Timothy in Ephesus. Paul, quote, does not permit a woman to teach, but remember how Priscilla taught Apollos? That was in Ephesus, Acts 18.26. This injunction then doesn't seem like it can be about any teaching at all, but is instead about teaching authoritatively in the Sunday gathering, that is, taking on the role of elder. Priscilla teaches Apollos, but she does not exercise authority or eldership over him. She is his sister in Christ with wisdom to share. This also cannot simply be a culturally conditioned commandment. You know, the common pushback is that Paul only makes this rule because the women of that time were uneducated and therefore unable to teach. That argument doesn't work either because, again, Priscilla is teaching in Ephesus, and she's there. She's certainly able. She is simply not to exercise public authority in the church or teach in the Sunday gathering because such a role as a kind of visual sermon to the world about Christ's relationship to his church, is reserved to men. Okay, so if a woman isn't per permitted to teach in the Sunday gathering, is she permitted to speak there at all? Let's turn our attention to another eye-opening verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, in which Paul writes to the community that women, quote, should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Once again, let's dig in and find out what these verses mean for us. So Paul clearly does not mean that women need to be totally silent in church. He gives parameters for women who prophesy in the Sunday gathering in 1 Corinthians 11, in this same letter, a ministry to which women clearly can be called. In fact, this section of Scripture, chapters 11 to 14, is all about orderly worship. And these verses that we're talking about now actually refer specifically to prophecy. Now, prophecy is uncommon today, and certainly uncommon in a church like ours, which makes this passage all the more foreign to us and difficult to understand. However, the offering of prophecy 
and the subsequent judging and interpretation of prophecies that had been offered was a common feature of the first century church. And it happened during corporate worship on Sunday mornings. So with that as background, I want to look really quickly at this Greek word that means silent, which while certainly occasionally meaning complete, total silence, it can also take a limited meaning, referring to refraining from a certain kind of speech or speech in a certain context. And I think that's likely what's going on here. Remember, Paul is talking about orderly worship in the Corinthian church. And here in chapter 14, specifically about how tongues and prophecy are supposed to work. He spends a long time talking about tongues, and he addresses what I'll call both sides of tongues. If you don't know what I mean, like like somebody would say something in a tongue, and then somebody else would interpret it. So there were two sides. There was the offering of a tongue, and then there was the interpretation of a tongue. And then Paul moves on to talk about prophecy, and that has two sides too. There's the giving of a prophecy, and then there's the decision of the church about whether or not to accept it. So both of these things have two sides, and what Paul is talking about in these two verses, about not allowing a woman to speak, that they should be silent in church, he's talking about that other side of prophecy. That is not the part we normally think of, the offering of a prophecy, but he's talking about the weighing of, the judging of a prophecy that's been offered and the decision for the church about whether or not to receive it as authentic. This is something that the New Testament continually urges churches to do, to discern, to test the spirits Not every prophecy was genuine. That is really from God. And therefore, the elders of the churches needed to make a decision about a prophecy that was offered. That makes total sense in the context of the letter too. There's instructions for tongues, how to do it in order. And then there's instructions for the interpretation of tongues, how to do that in order. Then we have instructions for prophecy, how to do that in order, and then instructions for the receiving of a prophecy, how to do that. So on this view, women are welcome to speak prophetically, but only those with authority, the elders, are permitted to weigh or judge prophecies that have been offered. So just like tongues needed to be interpreted in the gathering, prophecy needed to be tested, and a decision needed to be made for the church about whether or not to receive it. And that's the why here. Only elders are properly able to do that as it involved authoritative decision-making on behalf of the church. Was something in accordance with God's word or not? And this goes back to the job of elder that we looked at in first in Titus 1, that the elder must, quote, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what judging prophecy was all about. That's why a woman can and is encouraged to offer prophecy, but is told to be silent, that is, to defer to the elders in her congregation when it's being weighed and is either received or rejected. So what about this weird admonition about asking questions that a woman should ask her husband at home? 
This is a confusing sentence, and I did a lot of reading, and there's a lot of different views about what this might mean. The best understanding I can come up with is that Paul is probably referencing that passive-aggressive practice of trying to control a conversation by just asking questions. You've heard this, right? Somebody who says, I'm just asking questions, but really what they're doing is playing for power. They're vying for some level of control. Paul, I think, is cutting off a way that a woman could try to push into that authoritative eldership role during the judging of a prophecy by just asking questions and thereby subverting the authority of the duly appointed leadership. So where does this leave us? Women can speak in many ways in church, even in the Sunday gathering. They can offer prophecy. They can read the scriptures. They can sing and lead singing. They can pray and lead prayers. The only thing prohibited them, again, is the authoritative elder role exemplified in this case in 1 Corinthians 14 by the weighing and testing of prophecy, but typified normally today by the teaching and interpreting of God's word in the sermon. So what are our conclusions this morning? Both men and women are called to engage in much ministry, and women are to do ministries that will look formal to us, evangelism, missionary work, more, Both men and women are called and gifted to teach. Women are enjoined to teach children and younger women especially, but can teach, that is, share wisdom with any sibling in Christ, including men, as long as it's not done by assuming some kind of elder-like authority, normally expressed by authoritative teaching in the Sunday gathering. Both men and women can engage in prophecy, including in the Sunday gathering, but offering a prophecy does not carry the authoritative role that eldership does. Elders lead the churches. They're appointed for each church. They're the ones who would judge the prophecies offered. Prophets aren't appointed. Indeed, anyone can do it. Paul encourages all Christians to desire to prophesy, but a prophecy must be tested before it is accepted. Prophets themselves don't have any authority. It's the message that does. Both men and women can be called to the ordained diaconate. These are genuine leaders in the church engaged in all the ministries we've discussed, especially ministries of service. But deacons do not serve as the authoritative teaching elder of a church. As for apostles, Neither men nor women are called to the apostolic office anymore. That ministry is closed. However, it does seem like we can learn something from the fact that when that office was the highest authoritative teaching office in the church, it was occupied only by men. Finally, only called and qualified men are permitted to exercise the authoritative teaching and elder role in the congregation. To use ACNA language, this refers to presbyters, or priests, and bishops. And remember why. This relationship, the elder-congregation relationship, like the relationship between a husband and wife, preaches a sermon to the world about the relationship between Jesus Christ, the head, and the church, his body. As we close our time looking at men and women in the church now, and our time investigating the biblical worldview as a whole, let's go back, as we always must, to the good news of the gospel. 
Because part of Jesus' perfection given to us by grace through faith is the perfection of adherence to these difficult biblical roles of submission and leadership in the church. Men, in their sin under the curse, will not live into this vocation righteously. Any of it, leading, sacrificing, protecting, providing. The history of the church has certainly shown this to be true. But by a miracle of repentance and faith, Godly leadership is part of the good work that God has prepared men to walk in. Similarly, women in their sin under the curse will not live into their vocation righteously, any of it, nurturing, supporting, caring. And yet, by a miracle and by repentance and faith, godly submission is part of the many good works that God has prepared for the women of the church to walk in. The same goes for all of the things we've discussed, identity, sexuality, justice. Just as we do in our relationships with the opposite sex, we fall short of God's calling in those areas too. But by that same repentance and faith, Jesus makes us whole and gives us new life to live, preparing again good works in which we can walk. And that's really what this worldview class has been all about, or what I've tried to make it all about, understanding the world in which we are called to live and which God asks us to walk in. We submit ourselves to his word, confess our mistakes and our sin, and rest in Jesus's finished work for us. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for blessing us with this life for speaking your truth into it. Help us to know what your truth is. Help us to submit ourselves to it. Help us to live in its light. Most of all, we ask you to remind us of your provision for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us live and minister in his light and by his finished work for us. Be with us all now as we go our separate ways. Let us walk in your grace and peace and comfort until we come together again. Amen.